Hello, lovely listeners. This is a bit of an editor's note. So today's episode took place over the course of about 18 hours or so, and it wanders all over the place. It's a bit of a journey for me. It began based on a misleading article, but I didn't know that in the beginning, and I don't find that out until near the end. So some of the ideas and the places that I go in my thinking are a bit skewed, and I don't find that out, like I said, until later. But I decided to leave this episode together and to still publish it because I think, in part, the journey is somewhat interesting, and I also wanted to leave it together because I think sometimes it's important to remember that making mistakes, mistakes are fine. Mistakes are even good to remember that we made them and to learn from them and not to hide them. And that's sort of, for me, what this is about, because I have wrestled with this for quite a bit now and wanting to take the episode down altogether and delete it. And I'm, I'm not going to do that. So I hope that maybe somewhere in all of this, there might be something of value in there for you. And if not, my apologies. <laughs> On to the next episode. <laughs> Until then, I hope you are all well. Hey, it's Seeking Plum. Did you know that women, we are single-handedly responsible for the deregulation of the sexual marketplace? Okay, for one, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a sexual marketplace. I came across the word for, or rather the phrase, for the first time a few days ago, and I decided I had to do a little digging. There is a controversial French author by the name of Michel Houellebecq, and he has reoccurring themes that show up in several of his books, where he talks about the free market economics and brings them into the topic of human relationships and sexuality. There are references to him and this particular topic going back years. Okay, so what is the sexual marketplace and what is the deregulation of this marketplace? What does it mean for today even? I found a piece written by someone named Thomas Hobbes and I think when he wrote this he was probably in his early 20s because he talks about all of his friends being in their early 20s. And this was written in November of 2014. I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs because it gives you a rough idea of what was thought at the time, which sort of encapsulates the idea. Even to the casual observer, the realities of Western dating today can seem bizarre. Contradictions are everywhere. How are there so many promiscuous, quote, slutty women around and yet so many desperate 20-something virgin males? How are there so many, quote, alpha males with extensive dating histories and yet many attractive women lamenting the lack of, quote, decent men anywhere? But there is an answer, one the manosphere has been aware of for some time, but often has trouble articulating. Here then, I shall attempt to explain it in useful chart form. Parenthetically, that chart is useless. But carrying on, the reality of the past 50 years, of the rise of second and third wave feminism, of the culture wars and the collapse of the family unit, could be summed up in one word, deregulation. 
In short, people are no longer beholden to a great deal of legal and social restrictions on their behavior, particularly when it comes to their sexuality. A whole host of sexual behaviors, once rare or at least taboo, are now increasingly common. Sex before marriage, quote, open relationships, one-night stands, masturbation, childbirth outside of wedlock, single parenthood, the list goes on. In most Western countries, divorce rates are now pushing 50%. And this is when he starts to try to make his argument. I won't read you the entire article, but I'll try to to give you just a few tidbits and then my thoughts interspersed. He seems to think that because men have a stronger sex drive earlier in life, of course he doesn't point this out, that it's earlier in life and that women have a stronger sex drive later in life, but, but that's beside the point. But because men have this stronger sex drive that with the deregulation of the sexual marketplace, it has destabilized things and that it's going to result in violence. He makes mention of involuntary celibates, or as you may have more recently heard of them, as incels. Although initially he seems to point out there are those different changes in culture, etc., he still always comes back to its women, that there is the rise in feminism, there is this freedom that wasn't once there. What spurred me on this whole search to figure out more about what this sexual marketplace really was, was learning about an article that had gone a bit viral and caused a bit of upheaval when someone used the phrase enforced monogamy over the past weekend. I believe that it was um, an opinion writer, uh, maybe for the New York Times, don't quote me on that. This idea of enforced monogamy is very similar to these topics that this Thomas Hobbes person is writing about. It's not necessarily, you know, chains monogamy, this person must get married, you know, arranged marriages or things like that, supposedly. Supposedly, it's more of society encourages everyone must get married and you must live according to certain, you know, ways of living and ways of having a relationship, etc., etc., etc. The thinking seems to be that if we lived this way, if the world fit into these boxes according to this plan, then the sexual marketplace would be regulated, quote, again, in some sort of fashion. But I don't think that's the case. I think that if there was ever the perception that this regulation, quote unquote, existed, it was just that, a perception. It was a mirage. First, my question is, when exactly was this, that this time existed? And when you give me that time, those specific years, I want a specific time, it's going to be, relatively speaking, a narrow period of time. Because for many, many eons, sex or even relationships were forced, and I'm not talking by society, I'm talking by force. And then you're not getting the relationships that you, quote, say you want. You know, you're getting just sex which is maybe solving the one problem you say is a problem, 
but not solving the intimacy you're looking for. Because no one is going to be intimate with you when you force them to do it. When you make it a requirement. This idea that if regulation is not put back into place, there's going to be violence, is one that is escalating over time. You may have heard in the news the incident that happened in Toronto, Canada, where a man took a van and and ran people down. And he had a post on Facebook that mentioned being an incel. There was more to it, but that is maybe another topic for later or another time. Between incels, the red pill movement, and several others, these ideas are growing, are escalating, and violence is becoming talked about more and more. The incels have a manifesto. They are talking about doing mass raping of women. The red pill movement dehumanizes us by referring to us as plates and platters and several other terms I can't remember anymore. And although the threat of violence grows, and although the frustration is there and growing for these men, I still do not think, do not see this as the solution. And I would say that regardless of whether it is the topic of violence, because I don't think violence solves anything. But if we go back in history, however far you want to go back, there has always been an imbalance of who has a relationship and who does not, who is intimate, who has no intimacy, who can, who takes a woman by force and who does not. This has always existed. There have always been taboo types of relationships, taboo types of uh, quote-unquote sexual deviancy. You know, these things have always existed. It's just that they are now more out in the open. You now have a wider understanding because we have access to the internet. We have access to knowledge and information that we didn't once have. So your perception of what the world is, who is in it, who loves how, is different than what it may have been when your bubble of understanding was so much smaller. So perhaps in your perception there was a time, perhaps, that this existence of the world looked different than you see it now. I disagree with this perception, but you are entitled to this perception. I'm saying the theoretical you because I don't believe that the men listening to this podcast have these kinds of thoughts or thinking. So as much as I wanted to know more about this quote-unquote sexual marketplace and deregulation and how we women were responsible for this, I wanted to know what we could do about it now, down the line, and how we could, you know, try to avoid violence if at all possible. Frankly, I do not think that there's an easy answer to this. I think that this type of thinking has been built upon and built upon and even the crevices where there may have been a way to wiggle your way in with a different thought have been filled in with cemented thinking and it's all been solidified into this concrete slab that there is, it would be very difficult to bring down. 
because it's all predicated on this idea of society and gender and sexuality and none of it, none of it does any self-reflection on could it be that maybe I do not understand that the world is changing, culture is changing, that maybe women have felt X, Y, or Z, you know, that maybe they were treated differently, that maybe my perception was different. I am so curious whether how or, or how many of these men have considered what it would be like to be owned by someone else, what it's like to own someone, whatever that person's race or gender, and what it feels like to be controlled in every respect. And, and I'm taking this outside of sexuality, okay? But to, to control someone to such a degree that they have no choice or very little choice and how they would feel if they were in that role. Because I think that that would change perspective. But again, if you have this concrete slab that is the foundation for everything else you continue to build on top of that slab, then this, it makes it very difficult to consider anything else. If you believe that women are responsible for this state of society or the state of your life specifically, then you will never hear, I don't, I don't just mean audibly hear, but I mean you will not receive anything that a woman has to say on this topic. Maybe, maybe on not much of anything else either. So then they can only possibly be receptive to another man coming to speak to them. So I guess this brings me to you. I, I have questions for you, dear sirs. If you were to speak to one of these men who potentially blames the Me Too movement, who sees women as liars, as deceitful, as responsible for not having what they want to have, etc., 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 where would you begin? What would you say? How would you humanize us again? make us not out to be the enemy anymore. What would you say? How would you approach this so that maybe, maybe if it doesn't solve things in the immediate, that in time, these conversations could have an effect so that maybe we don't have this escalation of violence 10, 20 years from now, but we have raised sons that can respect all sons, because I know that there are definitely sons, there are definitely men out there that respect women. What could be said to turn the tide? Or what could be done or said in the home to start changing perspectives so that these young boys becoming young men 
can go out into the world and have a different type of influence than these other men. I'm curious. I'd love to hear any input that you have because at this point, I am the enemy. I found it, the article from this weekend. From the New York Times, it's called Jordan Peterson, Custodian of the Patriarchy. I didn't have a chance to read it before, but I just finished reading it. And wow. Mr. Peterson is 55 years old. He is a University of Toronto psychology professor, turned YouTube philosopher, turned mystical father figure. And he's emerged as an influential thought leader. Without doing too deep of a dive on this article, this man seems to be full of contradictions. He's all about the idea of taking responsibility and not whining about things, and yet he spends most of his time whining and complaining about things instead of taking responsibility. From his perspective, masculinity is order, chaos is feminine. And when you have an overdose of femininity, as the poison, then he has determined what the antidote is. He has a book out. It's called An Antidote to Chaos. He pulls from allegories and myths and stories and tries to use them as proof or foundational evidence for his theories, which doesn't make sense to me because those things are created to explain things we do not understand or to make up stories to make us feel better about something, not because they're proof of anything, not because they explain anything. He also talks about violence being a result of this deregulation and enforced monogamy being the answer. But he doesn't seem to talk about it in terms of it being a societal thing, but he seems to imply real enforced monogamy. His home and his bedroom are covered with pieces of art, etc., of violence, hyper-realistic paintings, etc., of electrification of people, nude women with swords. The list goes on and on. He has quite the cult following. People pay him to have conversations with him. They come out to see him speak. They fill auditoriums. There's a picture here of m massive crowd. People wait in line for 12 plus hours to see him. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. What boggles me as well is that this man is a professor of psychology and normally someone who studies psychology uses it to understand other people, to understand why people think the way they do, to understand maybe even to understand why society as a whole thinks the way they do, but instead he encourages people in their flawed thought patterns. And then even hearing the description of him on stage in front of these crowds, he's up there crying, he's up there pleading. He's almost using this as a therapy session for himself. And people are yelling from the audience, we love you, you know, etc., etc. And 
it's this really strange scenario. So perhaps it's, it's a man who needs something and he has found a way to get it by using the tools of his trade, the information, the knowledge he has, but he paints it up as something different. Oh, I'm, I'm all about accountability. You know, I want, I'm a serious person and that he's here to help people, help men to see, to understand and to villainize women. The sad thing is, is that there could be, there could be fractions, fragments of, of relevant information in what he's talking about, in things that we should consider and we should look at. But he has pushed them so far to an extreme that he's making it dangerous. He's making it something that it's not, which also makes it more difficult to address these fragments. I can definitely understand that it is very difficult to adapt and to adjust to the changes in society, in your specific place in society, whatever that might be, whoever you might be. But to decide that someone else is to blame, another group, another, another ideology, whatever, and to put the blame on not just an overarching group of people, but also a whole list of things underneath that group as well, is to me irresponsible. It, it leaves out any room for accountability, and it goes into that space of being what he doesn't want people to be, whiny. He wants people to take accountability and responsibility then that means doing some self-reflection here and saying whether we like it or not, things are changing. And, and how do I fit into this new world? I suppose he has an idea for that. That's his book, The Antidote. But my next question, even though I haven't read this book, is can this antidote be applied worldwide? Because these changes are happening worldwide. They are not happening just in Canada, just in the US, just in North America. They're happening all over. He abhors the idea of equality, and yet in this area, he wants equality. It is so strange. Everything evolves from the beginning of time, whether it's people, society, amoebas, <laughs> things change. And that is, that is, Entropy, you know, that is the way it works. There's no stopping it. You cannot, you, they're just, just, you just, you are physically, mentally, emotionally incapable of making that stop. So the question is, how do you get into the flow and either get into the flow and move with it or get in the flow and diverge it slightly in a different direction. But there's no way you're going to make it completely reverse and go back and exist in a narrow period of time. There's no way you can stop it and make it exist completely differently than it, than it is now or than it will be in the future. It just cannot be. And even if you, even if you <laughs> in this imaginary world did, it's not going to stay that way. Because again, 
things change. That is something you can always, always count on. I've, I kind of feel bad for this guy because he seems like he lives a very miserable existence. The poor, poor man. <laughs> but my, my sadness, my feelings for him, of feeling bad for him stop when he decides that he wants to change my life to impose his way of thinking on me, on my friends, my family, then we have a problem. the noise. I'm sitting in the middle of a restaurant. Hopefully you can hear me all right. So I've been doing some more thinking about Jordan Peterson's ideas and there's some things that still don't add up for me. This one about how enforcing monogamy is supposed to solve violence in some way. In my mind, if someone has a penchant for violence, then even if a woman is brought into this man's life, if she does not do as he wishes, perform as he wishes, fill in the blank there, then it, his disdain, if it starts out as merely disdain, could eventually turn into violence. And so then we have not solved anything. So if we completely disregard all of history, you know, any other cultural situations, etc., and we look at just that immediate situation right there, there is still no... I still don't understand. This still makes no sense to me. Something else is he talks about this, this idea of masculinity being order and femininity being chaos. And I think this is a farce, quite frankly. I think he wants to paint things in a way that makes him more comfortable with his view of the world. And this is how he's chosen to do it. If he sees men as chaos and that women are the antidote or women bring peace or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he sees women as chaos, men are order. But in reality, I believe it's the other way around. If these men, these particular men have difficulty with restraint, whether it's because they want to turn to violence because they're not getting they're not having a relationship they want, they're not getting sex, whatever, fill in the blank, right? Then if, if they're resorting to violence, if they cannot, if they have to seek outside source, if they have to seek someone else to bring order to their world so that they don't become violent, then who really is chaotic here? That's, that's ultimately my question, because his explanation, Peterson's explanation, does not add up for me, because it sounds a lot like men, in his view, will not be violent if, everyone has, if every man has a woman in their life. I cry bullshit on that.
think it's more like men, and if we're using his descriptors and only those two descriptors to describe the two genders, okay? I'm jumping into his world here. Not that this is how I see things, but if I jump into his world and I flip it around and I say that, that these particular men are chaos and women are the antidote to that chaos, then why, why not seek self-reflection? Why not court that peace? rather than this creating this illusion for yourself that you have to exert control over someone else in order to achieve this this new view this new world for yourself that you cannot you cannot exist in it without her whoever she might be this embodiment of you know what you think you need it's such a strange way of thinking I don't understand I feel like he's created this again as a self-soothing perspective and it's so ironic to me again that a psychology professor who should know about some of these things has not seen it in himself does not see it in those he works with, talks with, and yeah, he's just a, and I'm saying this as a complete layperson, I have no education in this area, that the best I have is as a client in therapy in the past, so uh, yeah, I don't know. He is an, an interesting fellow, that one. And those who decide to dive in and join him with these thoughts as well. Hey, Rhonda, this is Jared, Slingsmith Radio. Um, I think a big part of the challenge for, for the young men who kind of fall into the category, who are consuming... Um, a lot of these ideas, a lot of it is um, like a lack of socialization during the adolescent and teen years. Face-to-face communication is something that has, I think, fallen away. And also the consequences of embarrassment have been magnified by social media. So that fear kind of drives people, men away from these social situations. And once they grow up, they don't, they don't have that tool set. Um, that's why I think the root problem is. So as far as Jordan Peterson goes, I think it's alarming that his work has, has gotten so much or that he's managed to build such a following, um, it's kind of shocking. Um, I don't know how well the article, the New York Times article, really characterizes his work because I've heard some of his stuff. Um, and a lot of the stuff that, the way that it was kind of positioned in the article sounded a little different. I felt like they were coming out swinging a little bit um, because, you know, it doesn't seem to make sense that he's 
his ideas have so much purchase. But whatever the underlying idea is, and a lot of them are kind of challenging and problematic, what he's actually prescribing um, is not that different than what you would find in any other self-help book. Um, Jared, it is great to hear from you, and I'm so glad you called in about this because you've offered some insight that I was unaware of. First, the lack of socialization and face-to-face interactions for boys makes complete sense to me. Uh, Having been a young girl at one point, uh, definitely there was a lot more focus on interactions face-to-face, you know, being with our friends, that kind of thing. And I don't remember that same kind of focus even for my brother. Now we're talking a number of years ago, but still, I don't remember that. I remember him maybe spending time with a friend or few. I remember, you know, that, that the early days of the console, you know, and, and video games and stuff like that. But it was it was different and i can only imagine that with the advancement of technology that that the video games and so on are taking more focus now than they once did so if there was seeing as there seems to be this discrepancy between the genders and the focus for socialization it would only lead me to think that with with the advances in technology that that's only going to continue. So I think how we address that going forward is going to be difficult, complicated, because I don't see games going anywhere. Um, I think it would have to take a concerted effort, a real strong effort to, to shake things up and to put in the same encouragement for boys to be social as it does for girls. Because you, you then get into the topic of consequences of, of embarrassment. And that's definitely, I agree with you wholeheartedly, that I think social media amplifies that. And, and without those tools uh, uh, having been acquired in youth, then those tools will not be there later. But I think, too, there's also these additional tools. You didn't talk about them, but I'm sure you you were thinking about them as well. Things like being able to interpret, you know, inflection and body language and all of these other things that without those social interactions are missed out on. And if you don't have those, you cannot carry those tools forward either. So I think that there's a, a lot there that is is missed if we don't encourage that same kind of focus for both boys and girls. Um, as far as Jordan Peterson, this, I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that what you did about him because it's, it's always difficult reading an article where you you think there might be a slant, you just don't know how much of one there is, and I, I regret to some extent having brought him up and brought up the article, without having done more research. On the other hand, um, 
I'm appreciative that you called in so that I could have this shift in perspective, a shift that was facilitated by you sharing this with me rather than me going through the process and potentially, depending on what my sources were, maybe going down this path of still being caught up in the machine that wants me to see him in only one way, right? So what I'm getting at eventually here is that I think there is more to him than the New York Times article wanted us to see. When I looked up articles others had written about him, some of his fans, they were talking about how they have he has helped them change their lives, turn them around, come away from aggression and get get things together. How how to learn to respect women. These are all good things. Like how to move away from being suicidal. These are all good things. All things that we need for young men. Um so how can that be bad? And I realized that that is a fan speaking about him. So then I wanted to learn more. When I looked up his website and I looked up his YouTube channel, even these pieces, when you hear him speak, when you see him on video, this is not a man speaking from a place of anger and hatred for women. You know, this is not someone who has a focus or a hate on against women. You know, there is far more that he's considering here. So this article was very narrow in its perspective. Um, also, when I read some of the things on his website, he had a response to the New York Times article in which he described that he was talking about a hypothetical situation with respect to enforced monogamy that would fit with something more like The Handmaid's Tale, not necessarily something like a socialized enforced monogamy, which is more like what my original understanding was based on what I had been led to believe about society encouraging these things. So, um... He also explains the term because it's more of a, a, a technical term, if you will, and there are studies about it. I'm not sure that it makes entire sense to me, but I think I would have to do more reading before it did. Uh, but I, I, I've had my eyes opened, and I wanted to say thank you because... I think that if I had taken this route on my own to try to learn more, I don't know, I wonder if I would have got caught up in the machine, you know, the machine that wants me to see him in a certain way. I'm not saying that once I learn more about him that I will agree with what he has to say or the things he thinks, but I can see that there's definitely more to him, to what he thinks. I am still cautious because he is getting the following he's getting, and I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure yet. But it's more of a, 
hopeful, optimistic cautiousness. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I just, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, you heard music from Bortex entitled We Are Saved from the Free Music Archive. It's available under a Creative Commons license. The details can be found in the episode description.